and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Medea Ocher. I'm the managing editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by no one. I'm on my own, but I am joined by a guest, Kathy Park Hong, who has a new book out. It's called Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning, and we talk about growing up wearing inappropriate t-shirts and how one makes peace with the English language and Kathy's understanding of what minor feelings are. And so because I have no one to banter with, we should just get straight to the show. So today I'll be talking to Kathy Park Hong. Kathy Park Hong is a writer, editor, and poet. She's the author of three acclaimed poetry collections called Translating Moam, Dance Dance Revolution, and Engine Empire. Her new book is called Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. It's a blend of memoir, history, and cultural criticism, and it investigates what it means to live as an Asian American woman, a writer, and an artist in America, and the effective and emotional impact of that experience. We'll talk about what she means by minor feelings in our conversation. Kathy is also the poetry editor at the New Republic and a professor at Rutgers New York University. Thank you so much for joining us, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just start checking in on how are you doing? How are you and how is your family? My family is fine. We're as fine as we could be. It helps that the weather is getting nicer. I have a five-year-old daughter who is getting homeschooled and she actually seems quite happy to be at home with her parents. Oh, that's great. Uh, (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) It's rather more chaotic for us as we're trying to like juggle several different tasks. But, you know, I think we're lucky compared to other people's. At least that's what I try to tell myself. Well, I'm glad that you are all doing well and that your daughter doesn't miss Mm -hmm. school. So actually, that brings me to my first question. I wanted to talk to you first about your childhood. So you grew up in Los Angeles, and you're the Mm -hmm. child of Korean immigrants. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about your childhood and your parents? Oh, God, where do you want me to start? (laughs) (laughs) It's all there in minor feelings, I guess. I mean, not all there. there. There are some passages, there's specific memories that are in minor feelings. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that unloaded all of my childhood onto minor feelings. Is there a particular question you have in mind about my childhood? So one of the things that I did want to talk about was Mm -hmm. how you start discussing your your family and how your Mm -hmm. work and your understanding of what is you later articulate as a theory of minor feelings and many, many others that I also want to get to, Mm -hmm. how that partly comes out of your experience with your family. Mm -hmm. But just to Uh, set the scene, sort of. So you're growing up where? I was born in Koreatown, Los Angeles, and my parents moved around a bit, you know, in LA. We also lived for a little bit in Hacienda Heights and the Valley, and then the West Side. My father and my mother were part of this wave of immigrants who came after 1965, which is when the U.S. lifted the immigration ban. So all of these immigrants from Asia came. And 
in my book, I write about how my father, who was very ambitious, had this desire to come to America, even though he had, he didn't know anyone. He had one friend, but he didn't know anyone. And at that time, you could only go if you were an engineer or a doctor. And he lied. He said another profession was a mechanic. You could go if you're a mechanic. And he said he had training as a mechanic and then as a way to get into the States. So he and my mother, who were very young in their 20s, immigrated to the U.S. They lived in Erie, Pennsylvania at first, where my father worked at Ryder Truck as an assistant mechanic. And then they lived in L.A., where my father was a life insurance salesman. And then eventually he worked and managed and owned a warehouse that distributed dry cleaning supplies. So in a way, you know, he was the typical immigrant who really kind of lifted himself up from, I mean, he grew up poor to doing actually quite well. But they were survivors, you know, they were survivors. They went through war and all kinds of hardships from South Korea. And I was born in LA and there was just this really huge divide between how they wanted to raise children versus the way I wanted to be raised. Mm. For them, it was just enough that I had food, that there was a house and there was food and that they provided a good education for me. And they didn't know anything else. Eventually, they moved to a white neighborhood. And it was very, I don't know. I mean, to be quite honest, I hated LA growing up. Why did you hate it? I thought it was really fake. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought (laughs) I didn't like the car culture. LA's much cooler now than it was when I was growing up. I mean, there was an art scene there, I guess, when I was growing up, but I didn't know about it. I I just thought it was just a very, you know, artificial, very, where I was living was very white. And also, I didn't really <laughs> like the Korean community either. You know, my parents went to church, this Korean church in mm-hmm. K-Town, and I hated the kids there. I guess I just didn't belong anywhere growing well, up. Well, they weren't LA, very nice. Not, the no, kids were not very were nice, not. as you describe in your book. Yeah, they were pretty mean kids. Yeah, no, I went to, my parents went to, like, they started going to a fundamentalist church in K-Town. Mm. And they didn't even, my father's not even Christian, but they just started going there because they had friends who went there. And my father immediately realized that it was a crazy church. So he stopped going. But I was immediately brainwashed. And I used to tell my father that if he didn't go to church every Sunday, he was going to go to hell. But the kids were not nice. You know, I remember like I went to a summer Korean summer camp and there were kids and I write about this actually I went to this Korean summer camp where all the kids all the girls ostracized me wouldn't let me sleep in the same room with them so I was forced to bunk with the younger kids in the next room for whatever reason I was a target maybe because they knew that I didn't I don't know I think I was just like a weirdo (laughs) (laughs) or maybe I didn't believe in Jesus enough who knows Well, that might apply to many of us. So actually, I mean, one of the things that that raises and that I wanted to ask you about is the role that shame plays in your childhood experience. And also, I mean, as an immigrant, as a, we moved to Queens when I was seven, shame is such a massive part 
I think, of the immigrant experience that I think is perhaps not talked about explicitly that much because you're truly just ashamed of everything. I mean, you're just ashamed of mm-hmm. your clothes, you're ashamed of your parents, right? Like you're, it's just, it's sort of endless. And it seems like you experienced shame kind of in a wide variety of ways that you kind of break down in this book. Was mm-hmm. there a point when you started thinking about that more critically about your experience of shame and how you might use it? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was such a, it was a dominant emotion growing mm-hmm. up. I'm just curious, where are, you said you also come from immigrant parents? I was born in Georgia in the Soviet Union. And okay. we moved when I was about seven. So, and okay. I also had the t-shirt thing happen. Um, no. Really? Yes, totally. Absolutely. We had gotten my mom. So in your book, for listeners who don't know, you talk about this incident where from somewhere there's a Playboy t-shirt in your household. <laughs> your mom's really yeah. pulls it out of the laundry and you go to school wearing it because it's a bunny, right? Like who cares? Uh-huh. And you didn't understand why kids were sort of making fun of you. And I had a similar thing. I had, do you remember when, I don't know if they still do this, but French Connection used to make these t-shirts that said FCUK. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. had a t-shirt when I was, I don't know, it was probably about eight that said FCUK me. And oh my God. I know, I know, I know. Which now looking back at it is like, I can't believe nobody bothered to look into it. <laughs> But I loved it. I loved it. And I wore it a lot. I wore it all the time. And we Mm -hmm. were at some, I think it was like Sizzler. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And this woman turned to my mom and said, you can't, like, are you ashamed of yourself? You can't have your child wearing that shirt. And I remember my mom just being sort of like, I don't know what this lady's talking about. And I was like, oh my God, something terrible has happened when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe that other people <laughs> had a similar, had a similar experience. And I sort of I, think about it a lot, actually. Yeah, that's so hilarious. Yeah, it's like, oh, so we have this solidarity. Totally. Having two similar experiences. Maybe this is actually, I thought this only happened to me, but I think it's a not uncommon experience for the kids of immigrants and also, I guess, kids in Asia. Because in my book, after that memory, I also write about how I didn't remember that scene of wearing a Playboy t-shirt until I was going on this gag site called Mm English.com. And this sounds like it's closer to what happened to you. And so it's like all these mistranslations of English signs in China and Korea and Thailand. And there were just all these kids wearing t-shirts that said, what did it say? Yeah, there was like a tapioca balls one. There was a tapioca balls one, and then there were just kids wearing like a penthouse t-shirt or fuck Jesus t-shirt and everything because the parents just didn't know. They had no idea. And that was when I realized that, oh my God, I wasn't the only one, that there are other kids walking around wearing this like t-shirt with all this profanity on it, (laughs) you know. But to answer your first question about shame, yeah, it was always kind of the dominant Mm -hmm. emotion that I felt. It wasn't this kind of narrative of innocence and feeling carefree. Instead, I just felt very, very aware of embarrassed of my family and very ashamed of my body and who I was. And I was always kind of comparing myself to others, but I didn't really start 
thinking about it, like, you know, because this is like kind of almost a cliche being, you know, an Asian kid growing up in an Asian family, you know, it's a cliche to say, oh, I was so ashamed of my parents. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really think about shame as an affect, as a philosophy, as a theory, or as a means to write poetically until I think it was, I mean, I write about this in the book. I was like watching a lot of stand-up comedy Mm-hmm. And in particular, I was watching Richard Pryor and a lot of his comedy is about shame, the shame of being black, the shame of growing up in a whorehouse or a brothel and his mother being a sex worker, the shame of being very skinny. And it's just he grew up with a lot of self-loathing and then he kind of funneled that into his comedy. Mm-hmm. And of course, his comedy is now considered it's a work of genius. And I was just so amazed what he could do with shame, that he could take shame and turn it into this almost this like incendiary art form that it became this kind of he turned shame inside out. He turned his memories of shame inside out and it became this force of anger. And so I was just really inspired by him. So I started watching a lot of stand up. And a lot of comedians are just fueled by shame. Mm-hmm. They're fueled by shame because it's like a lot of humor is because of self-loathing. And it's fueled by self-loathing and also this fear of failure or this idea that you are a failure. And I think I also felt that a lot when I was growing up. So much of the dominant narrative for Asians is that Asians are actually very successful. Whereas on the other side of that is that Asians have this kind of deathly fear of failure or they just think they're like a failure all the time. Now I'm totally generalizing. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I should speak for myself. So I was, you know, because my parents, like all immigrant parents, failure was not an option. And for them, it was, there was a reason for that. It wasn't just because they were tiger moms. It was because there was no safety net. If you failed, you just you were sinking into abject poverty or something. So failure was not an option. And they kind of instilled that into their children. And so I always had this fear of failure. And yet I always felt like a failure all the time. And this was this inadequacy was really quite deep. And not only was I getting it from my family, but it was also like kind of outside my family, in school, being in American culture, not looking like or being like anyone else. There was also that sense of inadequacy. And so I guess I was just thinking of all of these minor feelings, inadequate shame, anxiety, all of that. And I was like, thinking that this is not I just thought those emotions were not explored enough in movies, and fiction and novels about the immigrant experience. So I thought I would write a book that really kind of wallowed in it and see where it so, led me. Right. So that's, let's talk about what minor feelings are as you describe them. You write that it's a radicalized range of emotions that are negative, dysphoric, and therefore untelegenic, built from the sediments of everyday racial experience and the irritant of having one's perception of reality constantly questioned or dismissed. That's sort of just the beginning of your discussion of what these are. Can you go into more detail about how you think about them and why you call them minor? I call them minor for a number of reasons. I mean, maybe like the best way to kind of expand on what minor feelings is to go back to that t-shirt example. You know, when I was in, I think, second or third grade, and I was wearing the Playboy bunny shirt, and I was in the schoolyard, 
And this older girl came up to me and she asked, do you know what that means? Yeah. And I said, no, I don't. And then she smirked and then she ran away to tell her other friends. And they were, I could see them sort of laughing at me or looking at me. And that experience is like an example of what I would describe as minor feelings, which is that I felt this, both this combination of shame and panic, but not knowing why, not having the vocabulary, not knowing why I felt this way, just feeling like I was wrong, that there was something wrong with me, but not having a structure of, I didn't know what the reason for it was. It was just elusive. So it was like, I just felt like I had this hex on me, like it was like the scarlet letter, but unlike Hester Prynne, who knew why she had the scarlet letter, I didn't know why I had the scarlet letter. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what the Playboy sign meant. So that's kind of an example of minor feelings. It's like that shame or anxiety. It's growing up where in which your reality, your experiences are constantly gaslit by Mm -hmm. a dominant culture you know, where it's either dismissed or where you're told that it's not actually happening. And then feeling this kind of frustration because of that. So that's an example of minor feelings or growing up in a culture where American optimism is enforced upon you, even though you don't like, for instance, saying Asian Americans are successful when you know that's not the truth. That's not the truth. And so it's like that cognitive dissonance between this dominant culture of American optimism, meritocracy, and the American dream versus your own life. I don't think a lot of people believe in the American dream right now. <laughs> that has been thoroughly debunked. <laughs> yeah. But it still holds true. I think people still, it's because we've been inculcated in this myth that it's hard to let go of. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Kathy Park Hong, author of the book, Minor Feelings, An Asian American Reckoning. We will return to that conversation in a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. Samantha Irby on the line with us today. Samantha's latest collection of essays is called Wow, No Thank You. And we're talking to Samantha because she has a book recommendation for us. Samantha, what book are you going to recommend? It is a novel called Luster that comes out this summer Mm -hmm. and it's by Raven Leilani. Have you read it? I haven't, but I have a copy of it and I was kind of excited about it. Moving to the top of your stack. It's so good. It's about a young woman who's black and has IBS so you can see why I related except for the young part who joins or like becomes a third in this couple's marriage oh very sexy I I loved it so much yeah it's it's really good I'm excited for it to come out so I've been finding it difficult to read even though that's my job technically don't Mm -hmm. tell anyone but (laughs) Uh, (laughs) how are you finding it to put it in context we're taping this during the quarantine period and how are you finding it are you able to read yes but only at night 
like as a wind down before bed, I feel like during the day, I feel uh, that overwhelming pressure of like, you should be doing something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at night, like at bedtime, I've been getting my chapters in diligently. (laughs) Um, Like I don't read when I'm writing. And so now that my book is out and I don't have to think about my own words, I'm just literally trying to read anything that I haven't written. You don't read while you're writing. No, because I find sometimes, and I don't even know if it's true, but I find that I start mimicking other people's styles. Mm -hmm. And so I don't do, it's either that or I'll read something that's really good and think, um, I should retire. So (laughs) (laughs) to keep myself from being sued for breach of contract, I just don't read anything until I'm all done. Okay, so but you did manage to you did you got to this book and tell us the title of the book again and the author. It's Luster and it's written by Raven Leilani. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you. We've been talking to Samantha Irby. Her latest collection of essays is called Wow No Thank You. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Kathy Park Hong, author of Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. In this book, you, you know, I think it's the chapter after this one, you discuss how when you first began to write or to be an artist, you first seemed to, you were painting most of the time, it seemed like, that you were writing toward an audience that, and you didn't quite understand who this audience was. It seemed institutional to you. I think you say like, I was still writing toward an institutional audience and that you were being Mm -hmm. a good modernist and rejecting, Mm -hmm. you know, biography for form and and going for Mm -hmm. one over the other. And that that really, you know, it sort of seeped into your art at that at that time. Yeah, it it, it was poetry to be exact about the genre, that was in graduate school. I, okay. I think I had a different, I think I was uh, felt differently about writing and art when I was in college or even when I first started. I mean, I started writing poetry on the sly when I was 16. And that was when I first started writing poetry, it was a really kind of furtive activity. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. I thought that I was not allowed to write poetry because I didn't know anyone else. I didn't know anyone, any, I didn't start reading other Asian American poets or any writers of color, even until I was in college, not even Connie Morrison, I think, but I didn't, you know, so I didn't start until college. So it was, it seemed almost forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it was like, I kind of had this kick out of the fact that I was writing poetry uh, like I was ma- like it was masturbation or something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and what kind of poetry were you writing? Do do you remember? It was just you know just whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. I was just reading something and I would kind of copy it, you know, or just yeah. I mean, I, the correct term is emulate it, you know. And I was just reading whatever I got my hands on. Like once I went to the bookstore and I went to the poetry section and I found a pocket copy of 
Wallace Stevens selected poems and I started reading his poetry and I actually loved it because I thought it was so strange and I didn't think I didn't really understand it you know mm -hmm. I thought but I thought because his images were so wild I thought he was this kind of just this kooky outsider poet you know I had no idea that he was <laughs> yeah. canonized poet until I went to college you know and or or I read like it was anywhere from well, Stevens to, you know, I read Charles Bukowski because I grew up in L.A. And who else? I don't I don't know. I'm trying to think. I mean, like and then there were like the poets who I taught it were taught to me in school, which I wasn't as excited about, like Whitman and Emily Dickinson at uh -huh. the time. So uh, it's so for high school for in high school, I didn't think about my audience at all or who I was writing for or if I should. I was just doing it because I could, you know. And when I was in college, that was actually when I really started becoming awakened to the politics of writing. And that's because I really had a wonderful teacher named Youngmi Kim. She was Korean-American like me, and she introduced me to Teresa Hakyung Cha and all these other poets of color. And she taught me, like, exposed me to language poetry and all that, but it wasn't like she deified white poets over other poets. I mean, they're all just in the mix together. And yeah. um, I had, it was a very, I had friends who were also minorities who were into art and writing. And so I was, I wasn't thinking I have to write for a white audience or uh, I had to write in this modernist form. Um, I was actually quite politicized uh, as a writer when I was in college. It was, and then afterwards I worked at the Village Voice where they were covering the Diallo trial in the 90s, you know, the police mm -hmm. on pre police brutality. And this was time Giuliani. It wasn't until in grad school that I suddenly became inhibited again. And it was a different time period. And I, you know, in Iowa was a very, is a very esteemed program. And it yeah. was a completely different culture. It was like I went, regressed 40, 50 years. And it was, the stars of the graduate program were all young white men. And mm -hmm. I, you know, w uh, became very insecure. And I thought that I had to write a certain way to attract approval. And it was, and it, to write anything related to my identity, even if it was just writing about my personal life, was considered pandering or too ethnic y or what what have you and this wasn't even and this wasn't even just dismissed by other white poets it was also by some poets of color as well so that's really right. when i just uh started thinking about being worried about our audience and it was when i started becoming i think it was when i started becoming more serious about poetry when i graduated from iowa when i wanted to get my book published when i met other poets in new york and you know when i was closer in proximity to popes that i everything, all the radicalization from college or working at the Village Voice just fell away. And I just felt very uncertain about myself and where I belonged. And then the book you talk about, you know, moving from that to bad English or what, and, mm -hmm. and sort of embracing what you call bad English. Mm -hmm. And you have a very complicated relationship to English, you know, I think as uh, most people who grow up in a bilingual household might. Can you talk about what, how you define what bad English is and how you think about English as a language for the writing that you do? Oh yeah, sure. 
bad English is, I don't know, I almost want to kind of just read. Yeah, please. I, it's a, it's... Uh, I'll just read one passage because I feel like if I reading it from a book might give a more succinct answer. Uh, this is from my book, Bad English, where it says, it was once a source of shame, but now I say it proudly. Bad English is my heritage. I share a literary lineage with writers who make the unmastering of English their rallying cry, who queer it, twerk it, hack it, calibanize it, other it by hijacking English and warping it to a fugitive tongue. To other English is to make audible the imperial, imperial power sewn into the language to slit English open so its dark histories slide out. Uh, so that kind of in, sort of encapsulates what I mean by bad English. I grew up uh, speaking, first speaking Korean. And even though I was born in the U.S., I, because I was, you know, my parents or especially my mother who raised me didn't speak English. I didn't actually start learning how to speak English until uh, kindergarten, I think, mm -hmm. or you know, it was like when I went to school that it was like as if I really actually moved to America because before that I was just really just around other Koreans. And it was just a very, it was just a very stark divide, I think, like growing up uh, speaking Korean in, a ho what in my household, Korean was a language of home. English, I always uh, saw as an institutional language. You know, English was standardized. It was English was the language of classrooms, rules, uh, airports, Hallmark cards, TV shows, you know, there was just a really stark divide, whereas Korean was a language of family and intimacy and, and also lots of dysfunction. But I thought that, like, writing in English didn't feel natural to me. You know, I always had this memory of learning how to speak English, you know, and of feeling like English was an obstacle course, you know, mm -hmm. rather than something that was intuitive to me, rather than an expression of me, I thought it was, uh, it was always out, English was always out to get me. And when I started writing, that feeling of English language not being part of me, but being a part of me, was always with me. And um, it wasn't really until I started reading poets like Teresa Hakyang Cha or say uh, Gertrude Stein or or even like William Carlos Williams or so many other or Nathaniel Mackey or that I realized that um, I could do I could make that discomfort in with the English language apparent through poetry I didn't have to read write like I didn't have to write uh, beautiful eloquent poetry I could really just tear English apart and turn that into poetry. And that was, or Paul Salon and what he did with the German language is a good example of that as well. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was always about when I was writing poetry, it was not so much using English as a medium, but also kind of targeting English, the English language as a medium and, and turning it inside out. If that makes any sense. I know that sounds a little bit abstract, but, um, no, I think you know, it does I make think, sense. Uh -huh. I, I think yeah. it does. I mean, I think particularly for readers of poetry, if you just sort of, and maybe just even for people who have read poetry before, there's a, these little pauses or little, it could be a punctuation mark, it could be a line break, mm -hmm. it could be an insertion of the wrong article before a word that suddenly defamiliarizes the language and you... Mm -hmm are you, you you become um the awareness of it becomes heightened 
and the ways in which it's used or put to use in different ways is, you know, and as you say, like, there's many different ways in which English has been put, put to destructive use and violent use. The poetry can really do that. And there's, you know, if you're, if you're reading it carefully, I suppose if you're just yeah. glancing at it, uh, it's not going to yeah. It's what Nathaniel Mackey was talking about, othering, using other as a verb, right. othering English, yeah, kind of destabilizing the language so you're aware of, you know, um, so the errors become poetry. And one of the writers that you, you, you've mentioned and that you dedicate an entire chapter to really is Teresa Hakyung Cha, who's the author of Dictae. I'm, mm-hmm. She does this to great effect in, in that book. So in, in this chapter, you go into depth about her death, which is a gruesome mm-hmm. death. She was raped and murdered, but that most scholars don't talk about that. And there's something mm-hmm. in there that you investigate. What is What was her effect? What was the uh, effect of her work on you? What was the process like of going into such a gruesome story? Uh, that essay was probably the hardest essay to write. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, because it was the death was so gruesome, and I also wasn't sure if I had a right to write about it. Teresa Hakeng Cha is a poet. She uh, she was a poet and artist and filmmaker who died early in the eighties. She was raped and murdered in New York City in the Puck Building. No one really talked about her her death. When I first discovered her, it was when I was in college. It was, as I was saying before, Myung Mi Kim introduced me to Cha. And when I started reading Decay, I didn't, I have to say, I didn't quite understand it at first. It's a very dense book. It's a, uh, it's cross genre. Before cross genre was very trendy. It was, you know, it had collaged photos and, um, you know, there was memoristic elements and poetry and it was you know it looked more like it was uh the whole book was formatted like it was like a french structuralist film but i was just really amazed because um she was not pandering to a white audience when she wrote that book i think i was really impressed by the fact that she would reference korean history political history and not feel the need to explain it or water it down for an American audience. And the English that she uses, the way she writes is quite abrasive as if she's um, writing uh, as if she's like a young girl who's learning English for the first time. So the English is quite broken in dictate, which is what makes it kind of a difficult read. But when I read it, I thought it was really quite liberating. I never read anything like that before. I thought it was very liberating that you didn't have to make, I didn't have to, that an author didn't have to make themselves very legible for mm-hmm. a certain kind of audience. And so I was, I was inspired by her. I also love the fact that she was not, she was restless, that she wasn't satisfied using one genre, that she had to uh, uh, use as many genres as possible, which is how I have always since then felt uh, as a writer. She's, uh, there's been a lot of scholars who've written about her, um, you know, about her work. No one has yeah. really written about her death. And that was why I started writing because I didn't know, no one wrote about her rape. No one really wrote about what happened. People won't even mention the fact that she was raped before, uh, that she was raped. They would yeah. just say that she died. And 
I thought it was a really disturbing erasure, uh, especially the fact that like Dictay is about, she writes about these women martyrs who died young, who had yeah. violent deaths. And here she, and the author of this book also died violently. And it was just, it's just, the subject is untouched. No one has written about it. And I didn't even know that it wasn't written about. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought that it needed to be told. And I thought her family members wouldn't want to talk about it. And that was why I thought maybe the, uh, the, the, the murder was still unsolved or, but it was all there. The court papers are online and her, and I talked, and then I uh, interviewed her brother who was really willing to talk, who, who was happy to talk. He in fact wrote a memoir about her death. That's in Korean. Mm-hmm. And it was just revelatory and both really, really quite sad talking to him about Teresa. And I realized how it's not, I realized as I was working on this essay that it wasn't just about her death that I wanted to write about, but her, you know, the essay is called as a person. As a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the essay is about, it's called portrait of an artist. So it's also about how she came to America and how she became an artist, what she went through and her own struggles, how she was also, she went to New York in the late 70s and the early 80s and was disgusted by the kind of uh, careerist, you know, by the kind of phony art scene, you know, which made her very human and very relatable. And it was always, it's very, it's been very odd to me that no one has explored this biographical, you know, just the story of her life. So that that's really what the essay is about, and it's also about how she di- how she was raped and murdered, and what happened in the Puck Building, and yeah. why no one talks about it. It's also about the silence surrounding her death. Maybe as a last question, so one of the things that it seemed like that chapter was doing, and that the essays in this book do sort of over and over, is your subtitle, which is they reckon with something. And the subtitle of the book is An Asian American Reckoning. When you think about a reckoning, when you think about what this book reckons with, maybe this is a big question, but what kind of reckoning is this for you? Do you feel like it's a, do you feel, I mean, in some ways, like, I don't know if a reckoning can be successful (laughs) or if it can be cathartic or, but what is the experience of this reckoning for you? and, And how do you think of what a reckoning does? I think for me, a reckoning was this kind of continual confrontation and it's confrontation and evaluation and reconciling. That reconciling never ends. You know, I think when people think about being reconciled or reconciliation, that it's like it's it's a resolution that has an end point. And I think it's not, I don't believe that. I think we need to, an Asian American, it's indefinite article. It's my own personal reckoning with the racial identity of being Asian American, what that means. I've always kind of uh, avoided tackling that directly. By confronting the Asian American condition, I guess what I'm trying to do is 
by doing it in my own very partial and subjective and weird way, I want to invite other people to do the same, other other Asian Americans to also reckon, also confront, also evaluate and reconcile uh, their uh, their racial condition, um, partly because, you know, we're never, when we talk about Asian American identity, it's always, Asian American identity is invisible in the national discourse about race or politics. Uh, we're just invisible. Now we're hyper-visible because of the pandemic, but before that, you know, it depends on the historic moment. For the most part, um, Asian Americans are are invisible, and it's uh, it's first of all, this book is a reckoning in the sense that we're, it's acknowledging our presence. Like, hey, we're mm-hmm. here, and we are part of this country, and we are going to. There are more and more of us. There's going to be, uh, you know, yes, we're maybe five percent now, six percent now, but we're going to be double that in the future. And what does that mean? I also think that, and this is not necessarily the fault of Asian Americans, but because we're so invisible in media, in uh, culture, in politics, we haven't really talked about what it means to decolonize ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, decolonize our mindset. I think for a lot of Asians, I know, I'm not going to speak broadly, for having grown up prioritizing whiteness and thinking whiteness was uh, equivalent to success, it's really hard. We have to kind of divest from that. And uh, that's also kind of reckoning. I think it's also reckoning for white people, too. I want white people to read it, to understand. I think I want other people, Americans, to read it. Because people don't know about Asian Americans a lot. I think and it's made very clear by covid uh, people think that we're all Chinese, you know, yeah. um, they don't understand the history of Asian Americans. Um, I think it was, uh, you know, there's a little bit of Asian American history there that I didn't initially want to put in there because I didn't want it to be a sociology text. But then I thought it was necessary because so many people, including Asians, don't know about Asian American history and how long we've been here. Um, right. yeah, so I, mean, the beginning I want them to colonizing yeah, the land, I, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I want them to acknowledge uh, Asians as part of this country. And I would also love other uh, people of color to read it, to see that we're not exactly the model minority that uh, even though our systems of oppression work very differently for African Americans or Indigenous or Latinx, as it does for Asian Americans, there are still overlapping similarities. Mm-hmm. I also hope that when Asian Americans read it, they understand that they need to be part of the racial discourse too, and to really kind of interrogate their own racial biases. Mm-hmm. So I hope that answered your question. It does. Thank you so much, Kathy, for talking mm-hmm. to us. No, oh, you're welcome. We've been talking to Kathy Park Hong. Her new book is called Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. 
Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. 